This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm superstar Frank Morano. <clears throat> boy, oh boy, does it feel like we do this every day. Another day that ends in a Y, and another wrestler who I was a longtime fan of has passed away. This time, Michael Jones, uh, better known in uh, the WWF, as Virgil, better known in the WCW as Vincent, has passed away. Uh, Virgil, was, and he wrestled, you know, Michael Jones had several other incarnations beyond those two characters. Those are just the best known. But um, Virgil in the WWF in the 1980s and early 1990s was one of the most clever characters of that era. So there was this villain, this bad guy wrestler named Million, the Million Dollar Man, Ted DiBiase. And basically, Ted DiBiase was the alter ego of Vince McMahon. Vince McMahon always wanted to be a bad guy wrestler with limitless amounts of money that could treat anybody however he wanted and walk all over them. So he created a character that did exactly that, Ted DiBiase. Now, unlike other wrestlers... Ted DiBiase didn't have a manager. He didn't have a valet. He had a bodyguard. He had a bodyguard. And the bodyguard was Virgil. So Virgil would follow Ted DiBiase, the million-dollar man, around with a suitcase full of money. And if anybody ever tried to do... I mean, what other wrestler has a bodyguard? It was brilliant. If anybody tried to do the million-dollar man harm... Virgil would stop them. Additionally, when Ted DiBiase would win one of his matches, he would have, you know, his his final move was the million-dollar dream, a kind of sleeper, sleeper hold, and it would leave his opponent on the floor. Virgil would come out and stick uh, $100 or something, some cash denomination, in the opponent's mouth. It was very demeaning. And the motto of the million-dollar man was, every man has his price. Now, as... So this went on for a while, went on for about four or five years, as happens in the world of pro wrestling, the two had a falling out. Eventually, after years, not in real life, but, you know, in the world of pro wrestling, which they call kayfabe, eventually Virgil got tired of the abuse, got tired of being mistreated by the million dollar man. So he turns on him. And now the million dollar man could never 
win the heavyweight championship of the world in the WWF himself, even though I believe he should be recognized as a champion. That's a story for another day and a discussion for another day. So he essentially created his own belt. He created the Million Dollar Championship. And, you know, he was the Million Dollar Champion because he was the Million Dollar Man. Well, when he and Virgil had a falling out, they fought for this Million Dollar Championship. And the first pay-per-view I ever attended in person as a wrestling fan was SummerSlam 1991, and that's where Virgil beat Ted DiBiase for the Million Dollar Championship. I think there's only been four men to be the Million Dollar Champion in history. Obviously, the Million Dollar Man, Ted DiBiase, Virgil, the ringmaster, who later became a fellow you might have heard of, called uh, Stone Cold Steve Austin, and then... um, Ted DiBiase's son, Ted DiBiase Jr. So <clears throat> that I was there when Ted DiBiase lost that match to Virgil. He was a promo. It was at Madison Square Garden. It was very exciting. He was a promo of uh, Virgil hyping up that SummerSlam 1991. The Million Dollar Belt is going to be on the line as Million Dollar Man Ted DiBiase meets his former bodyguard Virgil. Hey DiBiase, I'm going to catch the train down to Madison Square Garden, but at SummerSlam when I beat you, man, I'm going to tip your limo driver so nicely, he's going to take me down and ride me down to Broadway, and you and Sherry going to be catching a cab. So he had a couple of good years as, as a face, and then he wins that Million Dollar Championship. DiBiase. I look on my million dollar belt and I can see fingerprints from garbage men, fingerprints from uh, pizza carriers, fingerprints from auto workers, fingerprints from secretaries, and all kind of little fingerprints from little small kids. Like, you should eat your heart out. I know you want to come get it. Now what's holding you back? I can come anywhere, any place. You call the place, man, and I'll be there to defend this because I have all the good people behind me, man, the one who rub on this belt. It's my belt, and it's all the people's belt. So you want it to be your belt? Come on down and get it. So he had a few good years. He was a uh, he was a good wrestler, not a great wrestler, but a good wrestler. Not you know not a bad wrestler at all. He really played his characters well and served the role um, that he played throughout the world of wrestling fairly well. I got to meet him, and this is what's so fun about independent wrestling shows: is a lot of times people that are big stars after they get dropped by the big federations or you know they choose to go out on their own, they'll still wrestle in these small little independent shows, which are great and it's so much fun. And if you have a child that's a wrestling fan, I would encourage you to take them to as many of these independent shows as possible because I had so much more fun going to these uh, small independent shows over the years than I did going to big arenas at Madison Square Garden or the Nassau Coliseum because it's much more intimate and almost all the time you get to meet the wrestlers before the match or after the match. You could, you know, pay them to take a picture or pay them to sign something for you. And you get to meet a lot of people that you watched growing up. I got to meet Georgie Animal Steel. And one of the fellas that I got to meet was uh, was Virgil, who was great, who was incredibly nice and a, a real gentleman. And like I said, a decent wrestler. So then he does the independent circle uh, circuit for a while. And then, hey, now, Matt Blaze, I know you're a wrestling fan. Do you know why he was supposedly, they deny this, but why he was named Virgil? 
I don't remember why. So, again, the Bruce Pritchard, who's an executive of the WWE, denies this. But most people believe that he was named Virgil because that's Dusty Rhodes' real name. And Dusty Rhodes worked for the competition, the NWA. So this was kind of their way at sticking it to Dusty Rhodes by naming one of their characters after him. Uh, we, Dusty Rhodes' real name is Virgil Runnels. So then... He goes to WCW. He's again reunited with Ted DiBiase, as this time as part of the NWO, and they give him the name Vincent. Vincent. Any guesses as to who Vincent is named for? That, of course, is named for Vince McMahon. So then he becomes a little bit later on. He does that for a couple of years, and he then becomes a cowboy. He becomes a cowboy uh, that they named Curly Bill. He runs around with those West Texas rednecks, Kurt Hennig, Barry uh, Windham. And then ultimately they rename him again as Shane, who is that's supposed to be for Shane McMahon, the son of Vince McMahon. So, um, you know, the saddest thing to me about this is he passed away at the age of only 61 he has been suffering the last few years with uh, a great many health problems. He had suffered uh, two strokes, at least. That's what he said a couple of years ago, and had been diagnosed with dementia. Then uh, he announced that he was diagnosed with stage two colon cancer, and now he's passed away at the age of 61. Now, a lot of people get cancer, unfortunately. I believe that, like a lot of other wrestlers that we've talked about who've battled with dementia, people like Terry Funk and others, I believe there's a strong likelihood that his health problems were exacerbated by the injuries he suffered in the ring. And, you know, uh, we talked about this a little bit with Jesse Ventura's son, Ty. Now it's a little bit better, but for the most part, for, throughout the history of pro wrestling on this continent, these guys have gotten nothing. In terms of health insurance, certainly nothing in terms of disability insurance. And once they couldn't wrestle anymore because of injuries, they were pretty much done. They were done. Now, now they do provide some protections these days, but it's few and far between. And it's one of the reasons that Jesse Ventura was so eager to unionize the wrestlers because he wanted them to have some protection. And if you look at what's happened, wrestler after wrestler dying young, obviously in a lot of instances it's because of some of the substances they've taken but I think it's this wear and tear on the body. There's only so many times you can be uh, th dropped on your head without it having some sort of deleterious impact on your health. The saddest example of this is uh, clearly Chris Benoit, a great wrestler. He was one of my favorites. And the guy went crazy. The guy went crazy and not only murdered his wife and, uh, and child, but killed himself. And uh, there's, I don't, first of all, the, they, they say that when they did an autopsy of his brain, even though he was a young man, I think in his 30s or 40s, he had the brain of an 85-year-old, right? Um, there's no way, uh, I, I didn't know Chris Benoit, I have no interest in, you know, holding his legacy up to a standard that it wasn't, but Chris Benoit, based on everybody that knew him, everyone said he was a nice guy. He would never hurt anybody in real life. And yet, to think that he murdered his wife and his child with one of his wrestling moves and then killed himself. I mean, the guy, you don't do that if you're of sound mind. And I really, it gives me pause about being a fan of this because a lot of people do get hurt. And I wonder if my fandom contributes to the continued exploitation of people that do this for my entertainment, essentially. I don't know.
So uh, rest in peace, Michael Jones, a.k.a. Virgil. Again, someone who said that uh, everybody that knew him said he was a nice guy. You know what he did after he retired from pro wrestling? He became a math teacher, became a math teacher, was a high school math teacher. And uh, apparently a pretty decent one as well. And the other person that has certainly gotten a lot of attention in the last 24 hours for passing away is none other than comedian Richard Lewis. I'm a hypochondriac. I'm susceptible to everything known to man. And my doctor called me yesterday and he went, absolutely no phone sex. Okay, you know, and uh, although phone sex is a nightmare for me, I'm in my hotel room in Oklahoma City there. I'm wailing away. I always have this paranoia that the, the woman's like, you know, in a kitchen making a beef goulash while I'm on the phone, you know. <laughs> you know, and I never have an orgasm healthily. I mean, uh, I just, you know, I usually, basically, I just do impressions of other men enjoying themselves, which is sad. <laughs> the best one in the last three years, I do Gleason. Oh, <laughs> that's good. That was... Uh, I started getting angry. You got to get in touch with your anger, you know. I started getting, hey, man, I was pissed off. She didn't love me anymore. And I started running out of terms of endearment. It's sad. I, I called her breast mutton Jeff, which was sad, you know. Obviously, I've been seeing a lot of Richard Lewis uh, th- because he's on Curb Your Enthusiasm. Uh, this man was hysterical. Born in Brooklyn, raised in Jersey, Um, Born to a Jewish family, not especially religious, and someone who has been a fixture in the comedy scene for literally 50 years. He came up in the era of the 70s and 80s where you saw, well, 70s really, the 70s New York comedy scene where you saw all these comics kind of come out of nowhere, and then they dominated the comedy scene for decades in both stand-up specials and, in some cases, getting sitcoms, talk shows, and other things. People like uh, Richard Lewis, people like Larry David, people like Jerry Seinfeld, people like uh, Joe Piscopo, people like Gilbert Gottfried, Billy Crystal. They came to dominate entertainment and comedy for decades, and he was really known for his acerbic sense of humor and he was someone that made whining into an art form also a very good actor obviously when we see him on curb your enthusiasm he's playing a fictionalized version of himself not i don't think it was that fictionalized though by the way but he was excellent you know i'm a mel brooks enthusiast he was excellent in the mel brooks movie robin hood men in tights I be- he plays the prince. I believe the character was Prince John. And he was phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal in in that film, which is a funny film. Far from Mel Brooks's best, but a funny one. And what sort of news do you have? Not bad news, is it? You know, I can't take bad news. The day started out so good. I had a good <laughs> night's sleep. I had a good BM. I don't want to hear any bad news. Now, what type of news is it? Well, to be perfectly frank, it's bad. I knew it! I knew it was bad news. Uh, These days, he is uh, best known, as I said, for his roles on Curb Your Enthusiasm. You know, I've been watching him this season, and look, we talked last year when he was diagnosed with Parkinson's, and this is somebody that had been very open in his stand-up act and elsewhere about his battles with drugs, about his battles with alcohol, and just like wrestling, that all takes a toll on your life. You know, there's only so much drugs and alcohol you can do before it plays a role in your health. And he was diagnosed with Parkinson's last year, and he has not looked good. 
on this season of Curb Your Enthusiasm. And, um, you know, recently there was a reference to his character on Curb um, dying and what he was going to make arrangements for in his will. And the way he looked in that particular episode, he looks sick. And, you know, clearly he was. And he had announced his retirement last year after his diagnosis from Parkinson's. But there's no taking anything away from the incredible comedy that he had with Larry David, who is a real-life friend of his. They were born in the same hospital three days apart. Three days apart. They were in the hospital, I believe, at the same time when at least one of them was born. And they've known one another for... Over 50 years, and Larry, went on social media, said he viewed Richard Lewis more like a brother than a friend. And Larry David is not one that's prone to over-sentimentality. Here he is arguing with Larry David on an answering machine message in an episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm. I came up here for the tape, and thank you, but I... I, I... I hate doing this because you know you always you always take it the wrong way. You've taken everything the wrong way ever since I've known you. Seven years ago, I was in Paris, and I remember exactly. Forget Paris. All right, you stole my uh, outgoing message on my answering machine. What are you crazy? How long? I mean, this is. Listen, what are you nuts? I know you're ethical. Huh? I'm ethical. We don't. You know, when people steal jokes, we hate that. But I hate when people steal my outgoing messages. <laughs> you, I remember calling you. You don't even know what you're talking about. You are you so have my main. same answering machine outgoing message. And it that's, bugs that's me. my message. You I didn't get that message. Paris. You wrote it in Paris. I, I had that message seven years ago. Years you know ago. what? I wrote it seven and a half years ago. Who's he was a fixture on the talk show circuit, did the Howard Stern show many times, did the David Letterman show many times on both NBC and CBS. On the NBC version of David Letterman, he did 48 episodes. On the CBS version of David Letterman, he did nine. So in all, he did 57 episodes of David Letterman. How many people have done 57 episodes of David Letterman as a talk show? And really, it was because he was such a terrific talk show guest. Because whether he was performing material that was written for him, or he was doing stand-up, or he was just being interviewed... He had a way of communicating that was just naturally funny. Here is his very first, at least a portion of it, a portion of his very first appearance on David Letterman all the way back in 1982 on NBC. Nice to see you here. You're now living in Los Angeles and, of course, I guess, originally from New York. Is that true? It's absolutely true. And this is this is a rare trip back to the home uh, territory, huh? Oh, this is, uh, this is a treat and a half to come back. You know, there's a lot of responsibilities when you're here for like an hour and a half. You know, it's like, uh, <laughs> I am trying to fit in. Uh-huh. I mean, I feel like, you know, not to sound arrogant or anything, but you have, I've lived here all my life. I come back for the show, and I'm going to go back, and I, you know, I got a call today. I mean, a guy called me up at the hotel because, you know, you publicize where we're staying, which is great. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, <laughs> This guy, this guy was angry at me for it used to be a game prisoner ball in second grade. We used to just try to it was really a sadistic game. He just tried to prisoner ball. He just kills many people on the other side. That's pretty much it. And I, he was angry at me. You know, if people harbor these little incidents in their lives. I have thousands of them. And this guy, I'm sure he's in therapy about it now, but he chose to call me. Good luck on the Letterman show. And then he says, I hated you. I hated you for that. So that's the kind of mood I'm in. Just that call happened about an hour ago. But I'm seeing everyone. You know, friends, a lot of relatives, oh. I guess, still back here, huh? Yeah, my mom, she's uh, 
I, I'm sure she. I don't know what time it is now. She's probably cooking now. We're getting ready for the. Uh, <laughs> it's about a one eleven here in New York. Uh, tomorrow morning. Uh, that's the only time I have for dinner. It's going to be uh, like an eight a.m. dinner tomorrow because I have to leave and. Uh, <laughs> And I'm just getting prepared, you know, I'm really, you know, you don't have the, I'm sure you don't have the kind of, well, I know you don't, but uh, the kind of family that I'm going to be in touch with tomorrow personally. I mean, I love them. Mm -hmm. You never met them. I mean, they, I, they come out occasionally to L.A., but my grandfather would be there and be like aunts and uncles, mother and all that. And Yikva, this guy's name, Yikva, it's about 80 years old. And it's a Yiddish it's name. first name? Well, you see, this is what I don't know about him. Uh, <laughs> It's a, it's, a, it's a Yiddish name. His name is Phil, which I feel is a sensational name. Phil? Phil. You like Phil? Phil is not bad. Yitva, it, you, no, it means killed by an avalanche in, in Yiddish. <laughs> so he really was something. I remember, and I don't know if anybody else remembers this, he used, there was this fruit juice that was big in the early 90s called Boku. And he was the pitch man for Boku. And he did these commercials for Boku, which were hysterical. And I insisted on drinking Boku just because of these commercials. And I, I don't even, I haven't seen them in 30 years. But I remember he would say something along the lines of, something, no, Boku, yes. He would act out these scenes and tell a whole story about this juice, which was pretty mediocre, in only 30 seconds. And that's a real talent to be able to do that. And um, he did this sitcom with Don Rickles, which everybody hated. It bombed. I loved it. It was called Daddy Dearest, and uh, Don Rickles played his father. It lasted maybe one season. But just to see the interaction between the two of them was, was just wonderful. It was hysterical. I found the chemistry between the two of them just magical. And he was very funny off air. As well, you know, he was up here one time uh, at uh, he was at WABC in New York, uh, maybe more than one time. But there was one story that I remember. He was doing the Bernie and Sid show, and uh, we obviously we miss Bernie McGurk as well. We're broadcasting from the Bernard McGurk Studios right now, and off air he was just as funny as he was on air. The producer of that show at the time was telling a story about seeing her mother involved in some sort of a sexual act with a boyfriend of hers when she was a kid, meaning the, you know, the producer of that show saw her mom, you know, in the way you would not want to see your mom when, when you're a child. And Richard Lewis insisted that he was the guy that was being amorous with that producer's mother. And he would not relent. He was going on and on with all this detail, all this stuff. I mean, totally made up. But the fact that he went to that amount of trouble to improvise and that amount of effort to improvise a whole scene just basically for the entertainment of one person, when I'm sure he had other things to do, other things that he was promoting, I think is, uh, is very telling. So uh, he was really one of a kind. And I'm going to tell you something about Richard Lewis that nobody knows. And I am 80% sure this is true. Do you ever wonder, you know, uh, you, you, we've all seen Seinfeld, right? Well, everybody except uh, Tracy Ullman's character on Thur Curb Your Enthusiasm and Miss M, who listens to us in California. Everyone else has seen Seinfeld. There's a character on that show called Kramer. What's Kramer's first name on that show? Of course, you know it. It's Cosmo. Cosmo Kramer. Kramer... The character of Kramer is based 
on a real person. He's somebody that I've been friendly with for over the years. I reached out to him today to see if he wanted to come on because he came up in that same era with Jerry and Larry and all the other guys that I just mentioned. Kramer is based on the real-life character of Kenny Kramer. And 23 years ago, when I, I was doing a TV show at the time, I interviewed Kenny Kramer, and basically I asked why Kramer on Seinfeld has a different first name. And Kenny blew my mind, and I'm annoyed, and not annoyed, I'm disappointed that he didn't get back to me about coming on the show today because I wanted him to tell the story, and I had a few other questions about filling in the blanks. That character of Kramer on Seinfeld, played by Michael Richards, was not the first character to be based on Kenny Kramer. There was someone else that created, because anybody that met Kenny Kramer thought he was, you know, unbelievable. They thought he was funny. They thought he was almost too incredible to believe. And someone else, not Larry David, not Jerry Seinfeld, created a pilot for another TV show, another sitcom, and I don't know the name of it. I couldn't find the name of it. I tried to research it. I texted Kenny. He didn't get back to me. And they created a character based on Kenny Kramer. The character's name on that show was Kenny Kramer. He was played by Richard Lewis. Richard Lewis, and again, I'm 80% sure this is accurate, Richard Lewis was the first actor to play Kramer. The show was apparently terrible, and not one person liked it. Not one person laughed. It was the worst sitcom ever, and Kenny Kramer, the real Kenny Kramer, is watching this show, the one and I think only time it ever aired, and he's shaking his head in disgust and cringing that this guy who's a dope on the show and not even funny to boot has his name. So he said he vowed from that moment on there would never be another Kenny Kramer on TV. So Larry David and Jerry Seinfeld then reach out to Kenny about basing a character on him. And they offered him this time a little bit of money. And he agreed somewhat reluctantly, but said on one stipulation, the character has to have any other first name other than Ken, Kenny, or Kenneth, because he was cringing when he saw Richard Lewis playing uh, Kenny Kramer. Here's a little bit of Richard Lewis uh, arguing with or interviewing the one and only Dr. Ruth. Mind, but little to say. I think so, yeah. Tell me what, what's on your mind. What's you... on my mind is that I'm, uh, I want to feel good about myself. I'm thrilled to be here. I wish... It was a, more of a straddle lounger type of thing here. This is sort of like an electric chair setup. What like, are you uh, complaining about? My well, I feel like I'm in a museum. I feel like a kid, one of those uh, people they, they <laughs> stuff in a museum in Britain. Now, wait a minute. You... Look at this. Who is this for? for a, uh, I, a pillow for a dead relative. I'll keep it right here. This will be fine. <laughs> Richard? I'm you... sorry. I, I'm just... My mother called me back there. She's, and she's too negative. And, and this is a problem. This is what I don't believe that because you come from a Jewish family. And you don't believe that How there could be negativity? Of course not. God. <laughs> Uh, we're going to talk to Noam Layden in a minute. If you want to comment on uh, any portion of Richard Lewis's career or Virgil's career, be my guest, 800-848-9222. We're going to try and connect with Brian Kilmeade in a bit as well. And I'll leave you with this scene of Richard Lewis in Once Upon a Crime. Stop right there, police. Don't shoot, I'm an actor. What are you doing here? What am I doing here? What are you doing here? How did you get in? Through the gate. It was open? It's always open. Then you've been here before. No, no, I... What are you trying to steal? Steal? Nothing. I'm no thief. I'm certainly no murderer.
Murder? Who said anything about murder? I don't know. Stephen King? Where's the body? I don't know. I only saw a hand. Whose hand? Madame Van Dugan's. How do you know it was Madame Van Dugan's? I don't know. I'm just guessing. It's a common name. Where's the body? What am I, a mortician? Where is the body? In the garage. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. After the hour, we're going to connect with Brian Kilmeade in a minute. But uh, there's a lot of news to digest in the interim. Someone uh, who is just beside himself mourning the loss of both uh, Richard Lewis and Virgil has just wandered into the studio. Our news director, Noam Layden. Stand by for the other side of Midnight's News. Side of Midnight and its affiliated stations present national and international news with Frank Morano and news director Noam Layden. Their summary of the world news and personal comments. Get the rest of the story. Give us the rest of the story, Noam. Good morning, Frank. Uh, normally people get upset with me because I'll bring up problems that are not solved, but mm. now I'm going to come up with uh, problems that have been solved or will be solved. Love How about it. that? Two Love quick it. stories. In Pittsburgh, the issue is across the country for this matter is you can't get people to join police forces like they used to do it. People, the, the job of being a police officer is not as popular as it once was for a whole bunch of different reasons that I'm not going to get into. But Pittsburgh starting today is starting this innovative program that maybe other police forces will follow. Police officers on the Pittsburgh Police Force will now work four 10-hour days a week. So no five-day week, a four-day week. Uh, They hope this will help with recruitment. As a result of the four-day week, those police officers will get an extra 52 days off a year. Oh, okay. While on the job, it doesn't end there. In addition to working those four days per week for eight hours a day, as opposed to traditional five-day week, officers will also get one hour each week of wellness time they can use during their shift however they like. So you could use it as lunchtime, whatever. The hour is yours every single day. The other changes coming today, uh, normally they there's this thought that you need to have enormous amount of police officers on the overnight. And they've done this every police force. And Pittsburgh really went in and researched this, and they said, this is crazy. 
We do get calls in the overnight, but we don't need this massive force in the overnight. Really, the massive force is needed during the day. So they're taking enormous amount of officers on the overnight off the job. Now, that's caused hmm. a little bit of controversy, but though. Yeah, the, I would think so. We want these overnight workers to be very well protected. That's right. These the, are my people. That's right. The city council, the mayor said they'll watch this closely, but really innovative program that goes even much deeper than I'm going to give you all the details for because we don't have time. But they think this could attract people to the Pittsburgh Police Department. Treating people, giving people better time, more time with their family, more time off. And they think that could help through with retention at the Pittsburgh Police Department. Has this model worked anywhere else? That, that, that is it based on something? It is or? not. It has not okay. been tried out like this anywhere well, else. Well, I hope so it works out. Police departments across the country, I imagine, will be watching this as well. Just started actually yesterday. Oh, well, yeah, let's see how this goes. I'm going to be very interested to see. And another problem solved. Big issue with people who live in rural areas to get medication and to go to the doctor. So they figured out part of that problem, obviously, with the Internet and with, move to a city or you can move to a city. Right. But now just a Zoom call. Right. You can meet with your right. doctor over online and, and they can tell you potentially what's wrong. But then the issue becomes, how do I get the medication to somebody who's in an area where it's just cut off from everybody? So Virginia has solved this problem in a really interesting way just in the last couple of days. They now will fly drones to people who need medication. This is especially true for senior citizens who a lot of times have a hard time leaving the house or don't drive anymore. And so we watched on. I spoke with this woman yesterday. Her name is Elva Malone. She was one of the first people to get medication via drone. She lives in a very remote part of Virginia. And she said, you know, I'm afraid to drive. I don't have family around to bring me the medication. The closest pharmacy is really, really far away. So sure enough, she knows how to use her cell phone. So she got a text on her phone, says, look up to the sky in the next five minutes, and you'll see something, a drone come overhead with your medication. So sure enough, Five minutes later, this drone comes overhead. She didn't need to do anything. She kind of just smiled and looked up at it. And then the string came down, and sure enough, there was her medication. It came close enough so she could just reach out from the top step of her house, and she pulled the medication down, and now she has it. And so they uh, say that was a successful launch to this program, and the people who are in these rural areas that have a tough time you know, getting to a pharmacy or a pharmacy is just so far away will benefit from this program. Other states saying, hey, very interesting re- way to use a drone. Uh, maybe we'll start experimenting with this program as well. It sounds intriguing. I mean, yes, Virginia, there is a Clobitasol <laughs> I can see taking off all over the Commonwealth and expanding to other places uh, as well. That's uh, that's pretty interesting. I, I tell you, I'd rather use drones for that than uh, as flying killer robots uh, killing people that we're, we're killing by accident or spying on us, right? Well, we're still doing that. We're still doing yeah. that, but I guess they should deliver some medication <laughs> while they're doing right. that. These aren't the same drones, probably. Thank you, and now you know the rest of the story. All right, we're going to connect with uh, Brian Kilmead in just a moment. Uh, you can call in and comment on anything we're doing at 800-848-9222. That's uh, 800-848-9222. I mentioned that, uh, oh, you know, actually, Brian, we have do have Brian Kilmead directly back from Australia, the only continent that's also a country. Brian, we missed you last week. The show wasn't the same without you. Well, thank you very much. Fonnie Willis does not know what continent Australia is on, nor Aruba, by the way. Uh, you know that? I don't know what continent Aruba is on. 
So you we know, kind of miss that. I, I don't want to poke fun because my geography nope. skills aren't the best. I, I don't know that I could have immediately told you what continent Aruba was on either, but uh, I probably would have come closer. How did you like Australia, Brian? It was really impressive. I mean, you could take that city and put it in, in America. It would probably be the top three city in the country. And uh, just uh, the way it was easy to get around, like little things. Like you, you go up here, there's a trolley, there's a train. There's, uh, there's people are using ferries regularly to get around, not uh, necessarily as a lark. Um, and they don't have SNL, uh, um, SNL comedians buying barges. They're actually using <laughs> them uh, to get people around. I just thought it was very, very impressive, but I couldn't believe it. Fox was on Channel 5 in my hotel. So people know Fox in Australia. They were very much up to date on what's going on. They had one scandal that was kind of funny. They were talking about immigration. I go, wow, I, let, me, let me hear what's going on. Immigration, they were debating back and forth, veins popping out of people's necks, over the import of 50 people. So they're going to keep them on an island. What are we going to do with 50 people trying to get into Australia? <laughs> I think I have 50 people. I, we get really 50 in five minutes. I think I have 50 uh, people on my block. Tour. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, did you try Vegemite while you were out there? No. No, it's not even offered. But the other thing that is wrong, everyone said there's no tip system, so people do not work well. They you know, don't expect great service. That was wrong. So, I mean, I, don't, I didn't walk into one place where the uh, service wasn't great. And number two is if my daughter's over there, Taylor Swift was one hotel away. And she had no interest in going. So I said, listen, I was probably going to let's find out what, what Aaron Rodgers liked so much. Um, because he did go to the concert. I know they're not dating. So uh, she, they just didn't want to go. Like they were with 20 college students. They go, oh, no, we don't really need to see them. <laughs> but it was kind of weird to see the, the Taylor Swift, Travis Kelsey show come to Australia. I, I can imagine. And uh, it sounds like it was just as big out there. All right, Brian, I want to run through a couple of uh, quick news items with you because there's a lot has transpired in the last 24 hours. Amazing. Obviously, the uh, somewhat surprising news that Mitch McConnell is going to step down as leader of the Senate Republicans. Uh, Two-part question here, Brian. One, who do you think is the odds-on favorite to succeed him? And two, what do you think his legacy is as a Republican leader? Because increasingly, a lot of the rank and file have started to view him more negatively than they might have 10 years ago. Give me your take on both of those. Well, a couple of things. I guess I look at the popularity. He's got 18% approval rating in the country. But part of the reason why he's unpopular with Democrats is because he really wedged in two Supreme Court justices. Remember, uh, Merrick Garland would have been on the Supreme Court, probably got an up and down vote. If he didn't say, no, it's too close, you're a lame duck. It's too close. And you could argue that Donald Trump doesn't get elected because people knew, you know, I don't know. Trump is different. He'd be a little weird. But at least we'll get a Supreme Court justice that's a Republican, you know, replacing uh, Justice Scalia. So people were panicked about that. So a lot of people held their nose and voted for Donald Trump. You could argue that they got him elected. Then you could say yesterday that it helped him get a reprieve when it comes to immunity because with a conservative justice, not an allied Trump justice, but a conservative justice said, I want to hear this immunity case. Is a president immune on, October, on January 6th? Uh, does he, is he uh, ineligible to be sued and tried like he's being tried now? And the Supreme Court decided to take the case. You could argue without Mitch McConnell and also the Amy Coney Coney Barrett at the end of his first term. They said, "Okay, it's the last year. Do what you did with Merrick Garland. Hold, leave that seat open. And he said, no, I'm wedging it in. That was his second term, not his first term. It drove Democrats nuts. But he also just marshaled a huge push 
to uh, to put judges, conservative judges at all levels of the federal government. So there is a big win. What uh, people are unhappy with is too willing to cut deals in the minority. And, you know, at the end of the Trump second term, he was uh, didn't vote to impeach Trump or else Trump wouldn't have been eligible. He, they, you know, if he did his lead, they, the Republicans would have impeached him and he would not be running for office right now. But the fact is he didn't go to bat for him and him and Trump went on the out. So now all, uh, all the Trump world hates him. So whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, yeah. are, are the Republicans to be angry. <laughs> exactly? He's the villain. Are the Demo- are the Republican senators going to find someone even worse in the eyes of uh, Democrats and Republicans yes. to replace him? Who's it going to be? Well, the number one, you know, I think there's going to be some um, some real conservatives like Josh Hawley or or people like that are going to make a run and going to make some noise. I think it's going to be Cornyn or Thune. I have nothing against Wasserman. But uh, Thune, uh, the thing that I thought it was automatically going to be Thune, a little bit younger, tends to go uh, really respected on both sides. May I mention, too, a heck of an athlete by all reports. But he uh, but I remember he also was thinking about not running again. So to me, in the back of his mind, a lot of people might be like, listen, we've let you leader. You I, I really believe the Senate's going to Republicans unless something unforeseeable oh, this happens. map is the best possible um yeah. irrespective of what happens in the house races or the presidency i would i'll be a monkey's uncle if uh, the republicans don't win the uh, the senate this year uh let me ask you about michigan depending on wh- what you're reading or who you're listening to the results are either the greatest thing possible for trump and biden or the worst thing possible for trump and biden most people have sort of a, a split decision on that what what do you think the key takeaway is out of the Michigan primary are, if anything? I, I worry about Israel because the president, it doesn't really stand for anything. He's a political animal, and he knows that he got that 101,000 votes against him because of his stance on Israel and because of how they uh, they went into Gaza, even though they, they text message, they drop flyers and call people directly and told them where to move. Uh, the most humanitarian invasion after an attack in the history of modern warfare. But in Gaza, you have that Palestinian Muslim Arab community who is voting against him and will bring that argument to Chicago for the DNC. So now he's going to start pressuring Israel to pull back and don't go for Rafa. That's like not going for the capital. You have to take out this Hamas leadership. So I worry about that. But in terms of the election, um, I don't think Trump should take it as a negative to him that Nikki Haley got 28% of the vote. He got he got basically 70. Why? I actually think Nikki Haley's a good candidate. I mean, she's not just, you know, it's it's not an unknown entity. It's not Bernie Sanders, a wild socialist with no practical way of winning. She, she has people that like her. Of course, there's an anti-Trump vote. There always will be. The Liz Cheney, the Adam Kinziger, um, the, you know, all the people that can't stomach Trump. I get it. But I don't think that's as big as people voted for Haley. If I'm Trump, this is what I say. No more bird brain. No more negative things. I wouldn't even bring her up. You got it. And only, I don't care what their relationship is. All he should be thinking about is I need that 12% that she brings. You know, she he's up 78, 18 in the national polls. I need that 8 to 8%. You know, let's say the 8% will not vote for him. And others who just like her better. I need every single vote. So all I would be doing if I'm Trump, I just say I'm nothing against Haley. She doesn't exist, and wait for that phone call when, uh, or he, I don't think he'll make it, but wait for that phone call when she bows out because all he needs is her supporters. 
you were quoted as saying, we're talking to Brian Kilmeade, a nationally syndicated radio talk show host, best-selling author, and uh, the co-anchor of Fox and Friends. He's got a, a great lineup on radio today featuring Kevin McCarthy, uh, Brett Baer, and uh, Mark Thiessen, among others. Uh, you were quoted as saying, Brian, that if Trump wants to win, he needs to stop listening to people like Steve Bannon and Matt Gates. A lot of the audience hears that, and they start screaming at their radio, saying, I knew that Kilmeade was a rhino. How come? What's the matter with Steve Bannon and Matt Gates and the advice they might be giving Trump? Yeah, I love that. When people don't agree with you, you're a name Don't get me started. So, so here, here's the deal. Do people want to win? And if the answer is, do you, you know, you want Trump to win or are you fearful of Joe Biden getting four more years? I am f- literally fearful of it. I don't care if you believe everything Steve Bannon says. The country is not there and the Republican Party is not there. Steve Bannon has his people, and he, he's got, he can have great listenership, but he'd never be elected anywhere. What is the goal to get elected? Matt Gates is out for himself. All he did was make the biggest mistake in the history of the Republican Party in blowing up Kevin McCarthy. Nothing good has come out of that. And Mike Johnson's a great guy, but he has no idea what he's doing, no experience in leadership. Uh, so Matt Gates is just throwing bombs out for himself. I'm not going to fund Ukraine. I'm not going to support a CR. I'm going to blow up the speaker, my own speaker, as if he has a 25-seat advantage instead of a, now it's dwindling to a two-seat advantage, thanks to Matt Gates and other idiots like that. So what you got to say to yourself is, what does it take to win? And if you think, think that going what but Steve Bannon doctrine is going to win an election, you are not being practical. I don't... I don't really care about Steve Bannon. I know how bright he is. I appreciate his military background, his business experience. All right, fine. I appreciate his podcast. I like listening to all points of view. I like sure. Bill Maher and Steve Bannon. But you cannot get elected going by what Steve Bannon advises you. Brian, lastly, uh, the yet another state ruled that uh, President Trump's ineligible to appear on their ballot, this time Ill- Illinois. Um, it, you would think they'd at least wait uh, before uh, before making this determination until the Supreme Court made their determination. What yeah. do you think the, uh, the ramifications of this, if any, are going to be, Brian? Nothing. I, I mean, Trump's going to get a win on this. And it was totally unnecessary. This is Illinois. The Colorado weighed in, Maine won in. If you want a verdict, you wait. The Supreme Court's looking at this now. They're going to come out in a week. And they're going to say he is eligible to be on 50 ballots. But this makes Trump's case. Mm. He's saying willy-nilly, states could decide that guy, that woman is not good enough for me. I don't like her background. Let's say, you know, she uh, got a DWI at 26 years old. I, I think it's a bad example for the president of the United States. So I don't think he or she should be on the ballot. That's why the Supreme Court will lay in his favor. But if you read it, uh, March 19th, they're going to be voting in Illinois March 19th, and he's going to be on the ballot. So this is this is just all a show. Illinois took on Trump and I joined Maine and and they'll get their interviews on MSNBC. So I I think Trump gets a win there. I think he got a huge win with the immunity situation where the Supreme Court's going to hear it in April, come up with a a verdict in June. Then they're going to need time to ramp up. And then it's going to be election interference. Kicks the can down the road a bit for him, which is what he needs right now. Brian Kilmeade, uh, it's great to have you back on the show. Great to have you back on the continent. Let's do this again in a week. And don't forget for your Las Vegas listeners at K-Dawn, right? I'm going to be there April 27th. 
So uh, go to BrianKilme.com. We'll be live on stage. History, liberty, and laughs. Fabulous. I've seen the show. It is uh, second to none. Brian Kilmeade. 15 seconds of fame in a moment. 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is the other side of midnight. Three minutes until the top of the hour. What do we say? You get a chance to chat with me and anyone else for 15 seconds. Just dial 800-848-9222. The other side of midnight. This is 15 seconds of fame. Mike. Morning, Frank. Another sad day in the world of Curb Your Enthusiasm. First it was the Funk Man and now Richard Lewis. I'm sure Larry David has nothing to be enthusiastic about today. Richard Lewis, he was pretty, pretty, pretty good. Neil. Baseball's here another year, and some teams will run amok. But Frankie, one thing that's the same is the Mets will always suck. <laughs> Gary. Uh, Malcolm's killer, Salmage Hayer was locked up down in Arthur Hill Road at the abandoned correctional facility all the way out there in the boondocks. Robert. The Supreme Court needs to get tough. Hold anyone who violates their orders in contempt and jail them until they comply. The lovely Lisa. Oh, lordy, lordy. We got Flacco, and then we got Virgil, and we got Richard... And they say that always goes in threes. Pamela! Uh, isn't Brian Kilmeade the one who loves Chris Christie? And I'm supposed to take his advice about the Republican Party? Hmm. <laughs> Rusty! Yeah, Sid with the mayor. He's still his friend. Boy, anything for ratings. They get me sick. Charles! Give a child an inch and he thinks he's a ruler. Okay, that one took me a second. All right, Uh, we'll continue tomorrow. Dana Michelle will be here. Uh, we got to ask Frank anything tomorrow. Uh, Trying to get a hold of Dr. Jill Stein possibly tomorrow as well. We'll see. Frank Morano, good day.